This is the recording made in the chapel of the open book, and it is number nine of the series of studies devoted to the epistle to the Colossians. We are examining, for the, at the moment, the section of Colossians chapter one that commences with verse 23. And we observed in our previous study that there is no idea in the use of the word if in verse 23 uh, that there may be uh, a state of being saved today and lost tomorrow. The word translated um, rather supposes that you will continue then raising the question. I'll refer you back to the previous study for examples of the use of this word if necessary. In this present study, I think we ought to devote a a little time, if not all the time, to making sure we appreciate and understand what is meant by a very distinctive word that comes over and over again in this context. That is the word mystery. Let me refer to the passages that are here before us. At the end of verse 25, the Apostle says, to fulfill, or as we have seen, to complete the word of God, even the mystery. So it's something which is important enough for the Apostle to suggest that without it, without its knowledge, you have an incomplete word of God. So it's not something we can say, oh, we don't want to be bothering about mysteries, let's go on. We ought to be sure that we know what is meant, the mystery. And then in verse 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Well, if this mystery has got glory attached to it and is associated with the Gentiles, then surely again we should say this is something we ought to understand. And then when we come to chapter 2, we read about the full assurance in verse 2 of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So it's very evident that the writer of these words, whether we think of it as Paul himself or the Spirit of God that inspired him, he looks upon this word mystery as a very important word, and so should we. Now, first of all, the word seems to be built upon a basis that means something which is kept silent. And when we read in Matthew the 13th chapter, their eyes and they closed. That was the word muio, M-U-E-O, closed, shut, in opposition to something open and manifest. So we get associated with the word mystery quite a number of times, something that is hidden, but now made known. And then into our own language, there seems to have crept, uh, possibly because of the nature of language, quite a little cluster of words that have this M-U. We have the word um, musterion. It's M-U, not M-Y in the original, you understand. Musterion, that's the word mystery. And we have the word to mutter and to mumble and to murmur and even a slang term to keep mum and it all means to hide something. And that is a part of the essential nature of a mystery. You see, it isn't our modern use of the word mystery that we've got to read into it. Something weird, something mysterious, 
that we can't really have a meeting unless we turn the lights out. Oh no, it's not that. Turn the lights up. The point is that when we discover the way the word mystery is used in the scriptures, it nearly always is associated with some apparent, I say apparent, failure on a part of the purpose of God through the breakdown of the human instrument or the activity of an enemy that is being, as it were, kept at bay because he doesn't know everything. And I think for the first moment or two, we'll try to give that its place. Now, one of the um, ways in which I think it is useful for us in examining any distinctive word in the New Testament is not to forget that it's possible it's used in the Old Testament. And if so, I think you'll agree with me that a book that was in use three or four hundred years before Christ and used this particular word mystery would influence the use of it when it started in the New Testament. Uh, there's a continuation, you see, in language. Well, now you say, how are you going to compare the New Testament that was written in Greek with the Old Testament that was written in Hebrew? Well, you know, we can do that because uh, there was a colony of Jews living in Egypt, Alexandria, who had ceased to speak Hebrew and only spoke Greek. And for their benefit, among other reasons, there were more reasons than one, what is called the Septuagint came into existence. And the book of Daniel is the one and only book in the Bible, apart from the New Testament, where we have the word mystery. It is there translated in our version, secret. Daniel said there is a God who reveals secrets. And he uses the word there. Well, now, supposing we went to Daniel and we said to him, uh, what would you say in a few words is a good definition of your position here in Babylon? Do you know what he could have said? I don't say he would. He could have said, I am the prisoner of the Lord for you Gentiles. But you say, you're anticipating what Paul was going to say about himself. He said, well, I'm the Paul of the Old Testament. Don't you see? Daniel was there a captive. He was a prisoner. And Israel were now under the domination of a Gentile power so that they had lost their distinctive place. And he received a revelation of prophetic visions mainly to do with the times of the Gentiles so that it was almost an anticipation of another man who was going to be raised up who also was a Hebrew who became the prisoner of the Lord and received this, the mysteries of the present dispensation for us Gentiles. Well, now you see, that may give us a little guidance. Can we say this? I don't know whether I invented the phrase. I don't suppose I did, but I don't remember reading it anywhere else when I said it years ago, that we can say like this. When history finishes, mystery begins. Now, the history of Israel finish. They've become captive, and the history commences with the Gentile world. Well, when we come to the parables of Matthew 13, where the word mystery enters into the Gospels for the first time, what has happened? Now, we'll go back to Matthew 13, just to pick up the story there. And uh, when we read the passage, I had to grip myself and stop myself uh, from uh, holding the whole story up, uh, by the first verse. But we will hold ourselves, we will look at it this time. Thirteenth chapter. The same day. Now, what's it matter to us whether it was the same day or the next week or the month afterwards? 
Well, it looks as though we ought to go back. And in chapter 12, and in chapter 11, which is one long continuous story, we find our Saviour is pacing the fact that although we had worked mighty miracles and spoke as no man had spoke, yet they received him not. And he said, Woe unto you, Chorazin, woe unto you, Bethsaida, for it shall be more tolerable for you in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, and so on. You see? Then, coming to chapter 12, we have three statements that should be linked together. He said in verse 6, I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. And then in verse 41, and behold a greater than Jonah is here. And in verse 42, a greater than Solomon. Well, those three linked together, linked together the symbolic or typical character of Christ. Because the temple is associated with sacrifice and priesthood. Jonah was a prophet and Solomon was a king. And the word Christ is used of a prophet, priest and king. And here he stood in their midst greater than any prophet, priest or king that Israel had had and they despised him and rejected him. And the same day, that day, you see, he went out and sat by the seaside and spoke parables. The next thing is that it is not true to say that our Saviour, to accommodate himself to the common people, always spoke in parables to make it easy. Because that's just the opposite thing that he said when they questioned him. If he'd always spoken in parables, they wouldn't have come to him now and said, why speakest thou unto them in parables? Because he would have said, well, why ask me that? I'm always speaking in parables. He didn't say that. He said, it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, them it is not given. Therefore speak I unto them in parables, you see. And again, uh, a little bit further over in um, verse 34. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. From this time onwards, we get parable after parable. But it was not to make things clear, it was to make things clear to those whose eyes were opened. But alas, he said, this is because Israel are now fulfilling Isaiah 6, that hearing they should hear and should not understand, and seeing they shall see and not perceive, and so on. So once again, when we read the Matthew 13, it's very, very wrong to say, these are the parables of the kingdom. They are the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom. A new word introduced. The kingdom, pure and simple, has got no tares growing in it. The kingdom, when that is set up, will not be like this. The whole leavened. In this, in this set of parables, there's an enemy at work. The second parable, the sowing of the tares, is described as an enemy. That the, that, that, that the Lord sowed his tares in the field and at night came the enemy and the description is these are the children of the kingdom, not doctrines. So that now you see there's a light been let on. He said to his disciples, look, you are perplexed and worried because instead of me being accepted as king, although I've given all the evidence that's necessary, there's the Bethlehem birth, there's the fulfilment of prophecies, and all the things that God had said should come have come so far. He said, 
Nevertheless, it was known to the Lord that Israel would not repent. That's why Isaiah wrote his prophecy in chapter 6 and said what he did. Now he said to you, I can't tell the whole nation this, but to you I can give you a little light. And he gave it in these parables of Matthew 13. The sowing that was, to a large extent, wasting good seed until the last sowing which is yet to be, Jeremiah 31. The activity of the enemy mixing up the false seed with the true and having to wait until the day when the angels gather into the barn and so on. If we stop too long on Matthew 13, we should not get any further. But here is a good principle that when there was failure on the part of the human element, Israel did not accept their prophet, priest and king, then mystery came instead of a straightforward fulfilment of kingdom prophecies. Well then when we come to Acts 28, what took place in the land of Israel now took place in the city of Rome. The dispersed of Israel were not condemned for what their uh, fellow nationalists did in Palestine. They were given an opportunity in the city of Rome and they practically did the same thing. The Apostle Paul went through the Old Testament scriptures for a whole day. And again he had to say, Well spake the Holy Ghost, saying, Hearing you shall hear. This time he said the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. So again we've got Israel blinded, the mystery coming in as a consequence, and the Gentile being the object of it for the time being. So it walks on all fours. Daniel, the Gentile, Israel of failure. Matthew 13, Israel of failure, mystery. Acts 28, Israel of failure, mystery. And the Gentile coming in. Well now we'll come to another aspect of things which is also necessary while we're on it. To rob the idea that this word uh, is something occult that it is not possible to know anything about it unless you're initiate or something like that. I want to go through the passages now where various words are associated with these mysteries to show that it was God's intention that we should know all about them. When he kept them hid, it was in his intention that nobody should know anything about them. But the moment they were made known, they were no more difficult to understand than any other part of his revelation. There was nothing mysterious about them. Let's see that. Matthew 13, we'll start where we've got the page open. Verse 11. Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The word to know. It's given unto you to know. So there's an intention that they should know these things. Well, I won't harp on that. I'll come to another passage. Romans, the 11th chapter. Romans the 11th chapter, a very important chapter in that epistle, dealing with the what we call the dispensational side of things. And here it says in chapter 11, verse 25, these words. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. So he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Chapter Matthew 13 says, you, you are to know it. Paul says in in Romans 11, I don't want you to be ignorant about it. Now this is another mystery. The mystery of Israel's blindness. Because he said, uh, blindness is happened unto Israel in part until the fullness of the Gentile be come in. 
So there's the Gentile following on this mystery, and then, so all Israel shall be saved. Once again, we turn to chapter 16 of Romans, verse 25, and we read, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest by the scriptures of, uh, of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Uh, it would take us too long to discuss at the moment what particular mystery is in view here, except I could give you a hint. If you survey the whole of the epistle to the Romans, you'll discover that it has an outside and an inside section. Let me put it this way. Romans 1, 2, 3, 4 and a half of 5 deal with sins in the plural. Then from onwards, Romans 5, 6, 7 and 8 deal with sin, the root within. The outside section goes back to Mount Sinai, the breaking of a law given to Israel and to the promises made to Abraham. But the inside section, Romans 5, 6, 7 and 8, they go right back to Adam. And it's the first distinctive revelation in the scripture that Adam has that tremendous influence over the rest of his posterity. For one man, by one man, sin entered into the world. Well, when we get back to the last chapter, he's once more dealing with that inner section. He said, now this secret to do with Adam and his association with man was hushed up. It doesn't say uh, that it was so definitely hidden. It was known and then hushed up. Because if you read the Old Testament, there's practically no reference, hardly any. There's a hint in Ecclesiastes that Adam had some influence on the human race. But the Old Testament is more concerned that Israel should be, con should be convicted of not breaking the law in paradise, but breaking the law at the foot of Mount Sinai. It's only when they are passing off the scene that the word Adam comes into the New Testament and the only other person who ever uses the word Adam is Luke, the one who served with Paul. Outside of Paul's epistles, there's no doctrine of Adam in the New Testament. But here it is. Um, this was hushed up, but is now made manifest. But my point for the moment is, just to see that associated with the mysteries, whether you believe what I've said just now or not, there's the word to make known, there's the word not to be ignorant, there's the word revelation, and there is the word again to make known to all nations. It's intended that it should be known when the moment comes for it to be revealed. And then we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, uh, in contrast to his determination in verse 2, he said, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech or wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now there is a reading which changes the word testimony to the word mystery. It's not very, it's not very clear how far we can change the word, but it's good to know that there, that there are manuscripts which read, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the mysteries of God, what, what did you do then, Paul? He said, I kept to Jesus Christ and him crucified because you weren't ready for it. He said, I fed you with milk 
you babes, and even now you're not ready. But he said, I have got, have got a word to say. So how be it? Uh, verse 6, how be it we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. So again you've got something there which had been kept quiet. So there's a, there's a portion of Romans teaching that had been kept quiet. There's a portion of the teaching which comes into 1 Corinthians that had been kept quiet. And then again, if you come to 1 Corinthians 13, we get a little corrective. It might be good for us in the midst of this all to have this little jolt given to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, now that's the sort of thing that some of us may think could be said of us. Whoa, we are the ones who know all the mysteries. We know all about the mystery of Israel's blindness. We know all about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. We know all about the mystery of the church of the one body and the dispensation entrusted to Paul. And the scripture says, you do. Well, what manner of persons ought you be if you know such things? That's the point, isn't it? So he says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. That's worth remembering, isn't it, in the midst of it all. Well, then we come to the um, 1 Corinthians 15, and we have in connection with resurrection these words. 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now that is said to be a mystery that was hidden and never known until this moment. But if you read a few verses before, he says in verse um, 49, And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Well, that means you'll be changed, doesn't it? You can't say that there's no element of change here because... That's essentially what's going to take place. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Well then you must be changed, mustn't you? So that's two verses. So instead of saying, behold, I show you a mystery, that's what it says here, I know. But the words are very, very strange if you look at the original. I speak a mystery. Or I say a mystery. And the words can be, can be asking a question. He says, am I talking in mysteries to you when I say you must all be changed? It's most obvious that if ever we're going to get to glory, flesh and blood cannot inherit it. Instead of saying this is a mystery, he says it's the very opposite. The one thing that you must admit, whatever else you let go. So I put it this way. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Behold, am I talking a mystery to you? We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. Of course, if you don't accept that, it hasn't altered the blessed fact of resurrection. It hasn't altered the fact that we must all be changed. It only alters the idea that once it was a secret, but now it's revealed. And the other is the apostle says, well, I know I've been entrusted with many secrets, but there's no secret here. So, as the showman said to the little girl, you pay your money and you take your choice over that. There's nothing vital about it. We turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, no, wait a minute, I'm sorry. 
1 Corinthians, I think we go back on our story for a moment to see the Apostles' claim. Yes, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, why has he introduced that? Not to explain the mysteries this time, but again, another corrective. You see, when he came to the mystery in 1 Corinthians 13, he said, though you speak with the tongues of men and angels and know all mysteries and you haven't loved, it's tinkling brass. So again here he says, moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. That's the reason why he's empty. He hasn't explained one mystery here. He's only said what a necessity there is that the one who's entrusted with it should be found faithful. Well now, coming to Ephesians, we have, first of all, in chapter 1, you do know, don't you, that we can, for the sake of dividing this up and making it speak its message, we can say that verses 3 to 6 give us the will of the Father, taking us back before the foundation of the world. There's no reference to sin. There's no reference to forgiveness. It's only what he purposed and what shall be. Then from verse 7 down to verse 12, we have the work of the Son. We have redemption, forgiveness, and the heading up of all things in him. And that is followed in verse um, 13 and 14 with the witness of the Spirit. And in each case, it ends up with something similar to the praise of his glory three times. Well now, in this um, second section, we have a reference to the mystery. And I would like you to listen while I read these verses because I have to avoid the punctuation that we have in our authorised version. Verse 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace wherein he hath abounded toward us. Full stop. In all wisdom and prudence having made known unto us the mystery of his will, you see, there's a contradiction in terms. To abound prodig- with prodigal uh, hand and do it with prudence. No, redemption is prodigal. And teaching is little by little, step by step, as you're able to bear it. So here we have the mystery of his will. When it was dealing in verses 3 to 6, it's the good pleasure of his will, not the mystery of it. Why speak about the mystery of his will? Again, we just answer with the words of the parable. An enemy is at work. Now a wise leader of a military campaign would be one who didn't broadcast all his plans. He would do his utmost to deceive the enemy, but he wouldn't let the enemy into his secrets. And the enemy is at work all the time with his agents to discover what the secret of his will is. And if he can discover that, then he's on the road to victory. So God who knew that he had an, a spiritual antagonist, didn't reveal all his purpose at once. And when the master stroke took place, and he found that the people of Israel, who were the appointed channel for the rest of the world, had been sidetracked and put away, the evil one might have stood back and chuckled to himself and said, well, that's put a spoke in his wheel. And then God brought forward that all the time, before the foundation of the world, he had a secret purpose that had never been embedded in the Bible at all, until revealed to Paul that Satan had put in prison. That's the character of our God, and that's why it stresses the mystery of his will. Then we come in chapter 3, 
to two mysteries. It's wise to observe that if you read chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, Paul makes a claim that to him alone was the mystery revealed. And it was revealed that, uh, that unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and make all men see what is the fellowship or what is the dispensation of the mystery. That's his claim. But earlier, in the uh, same context, he speaks about the mystery of Christ, verse 4, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Don't you see, the mystery of Christ started with the prophecy of Genesis 3, the seed of the woman and the serpent, and it's been developed all the way through the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the book of Job, right the way up through the Gospels, all other writers. But the Apostle said, I share with others a, a knowledge of the secret of Christ. And then he points back to something that he's written, as I wrote before in a few words, which I believe is his quotation from the 8th Psalm, which you find at the end of Ephesians, chapter 1, all things under his feet. He says, you look at chapter eight, oh, Psalm 8, all things under his feet are all sheep and oxen. But when I received the understanding of that, I don't speak about all sheep and oxen under his feet. I speak about principalities and powers. Now, he said, will you believe me that if I cannot prove that to me the mystery itself was given? Don't you see he was following the footsteps of Christ? He said, what do you mean? Well, on one occasion, a man was brought to Christ who was suffering from the palsy, and those who brought him expected that he would do what he had done so many times, heal the man. But the moment had come for a change to take place in these miracles of healing. And now Saviour looked at the man, and instead of curing him of his palsy, he said, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Woo, they said, this is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God only? Right, he said, I'll take you up on that. Now, which is the harder? To say to a man, sin thy sins be forgiven thee? Or to say to a man of the palsy, rise, take up your bed and walk? If I'm a blasphemer, God will not allow me to perform a miracle. But if that man now takes up his bed and walk, I prove what you cannot otherwise see. You can't see whether a man's sins are forgiven or not, can you? I mean, if I were to stand up and do something other and say, I pronounce absolution, well, you poor wretches wouldn't have any evidence that it was right or wrong. But if somebody here suffered from some awful disease and he got up and walked, you'd have evidence, wouldn't you? Well, now, said the Apostle, I cannot prove to you by any demonstration I can give that God has entrusted me with the mystery and nobody else. But he said, I can say this, that if you compare what I've had revealed with regard to that which I share with others, you'll have to admit that it's been revealed to me as it was not revealed to apostles and prophets anywhere else. Well, he says, if you won't take that argument, I'm afraid I'd have to leave it. So never mix up the mystery of Christ, which was revealed to others, and the mystery which was alone entrusted to Paul. In uh, verse 9, when I read it, I said, fellowship or dispensation. The revised version reads, to make all men see what is the dispensation. And although in the two English words are very much apart, 
if you looked at them in the original, you could quite understand somebody who was getting tired when he was writing by hand the Bible. He would perhaps put down koinonia instead of oikonomia, you see. There's something about it, and that's what I think has happened. And it's most likely the true rendering is to make all men see what is the dispensation of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God. Well now we come to the epistle to the Colossians itself. We've been all this time looking at the nature of a mystery, any mystery, any particular mystery. And the one thing about it we've tried to bring out is that it was to be known. I would not have you to be ignorant. It is to be revealed. It's not something to be hushed up when once the time has come to put it down in black and white or to speak. There's nothing mysterious about it. It's as easy to understand as anything else if you just believe what God says. But no searching, no putting two and two together would ever discover what God hides. You could understand that also. Well, now we come to Colossians 1 and... Um, we move to verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He seems to pick this same thought up in chapter 2, when again he says, the verse 2, the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we have riches of glory and treasures associated with the revelation of this mystery. Now you will notice on this chart, at the last line at the bottom of this piece, I've got in you. Now there are some who possibly have looked at that and said, ah, he doesn't know. He doesn't know that in, followed by the plural, always means among you. And so some of us at times have translated it. Christ among you Gentiles. That of itself is a pledge of the hope of glory. But in the ordinary way you were aliens and strangers and Christless and hopeless and godless. And the sheer fact that now this man could say this is preached to every creature which is under heaven with no limitation shows you that the mystery has now been made known. But there's other, uh, other things to be said about this. You know, language is a living thing. And it very often breaks all sorts of shackles and rules. Of course we ought to say always, you must never use a preposition with which to end a sentence. But if we talk like that for long, oh, it would be awkward, wouldn't it? So we break the whole rule and we say, you never use a preposition to end a sentence with. And with the preposition. So there you are, you see. And language goes on like that, and it should, it's living. So that they've tried to put it into shackles and they said, whenever in is followed by the plural, always translate it among. Well, let's try. We'll, we'll keep to um, the, the um, epistle to the Ephesians for a moment. Just for way of a sample. Chapter 2, verse 3. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, among the lusts of our flesh. Well, that's pretty well nonsense, isn't it? Or chapter 2, verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Should we say, among the ages to come, for that's plural. Or chapter 2, verse 10, 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk among them. Surely that isn't what is meant. And just to finish, chapter 3, um, verse 3, Howbeit that by revelation it made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore among a few words. What do you say? By well, the time you've done that, then you see, you cannot make a rigid rule. Now you do know in the epistle to the Ephesians, his central prayer focuses upon this, that Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. Uh, if we'll look there, I think you'll see that it's a plural. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Are you going to say that Christ may dwell among your hearts? That's rather nonsense, isn't it? So you see, you've got to be so watchful that you don't, don't allow a rigid rule of grammar. Now, here you have in chapter 3 of Ephesians the thought that almost the climax of the truth is the indwelling Christ in your heart by faith. And he says, if that's true of you, Colossians, you've got all the pledge that God could ever give you that you belong to this glorious company. But if, on the other hand, you must insist that it be translated Christ among you, well, he says Christ is among you and he's never been among you like this until this revelation was made known. So in both ways, it stresses that most wonderful fact that now, without the limitations of circumcision or without the limitations of the promises made to the fathers, here is a message that's going out and ones and twos here and there from among the Gentiles as well as among Israel, there are those who are closing with it, accepting it and finding it in them the hope of glory. Well, I think as far as we've gone, we've just spent the time in surveying a little bit of what the mystery and the word mystery means. I trust we haven't wasted time. And now we're ready to pick up the story, carry it through to the closing verses of Colossians chapter 1, where we find a change. I won't go into it except to anticipate in verse 28, whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. I think that contains enough in, its, in itself to warrant a special and separate study. So may the Lord grant that those of us in this chapel who have listened to these words and those who presently shall join us, they may find in their hearts a response to think that God from all ages had hid in himself this wonderful thought that while the nations of the earth seem to be going on in their ignorance and darkness, all that time, says Paul, God winked at or condoned, but now commanded all men everywhere to repent. So the time has come when we are stayed in our darkness and ignorance, and we have received a revelation from God through this chosen vessel, and we will never allow anyone to use the word mystery slightingly, and... Um, We'll try, if we can, to avoid meriting it. Don't speak about the mystery in a sort of a, a way that makes people think it's just a mysterious cult. Speak about it as a sacred secret hid in the heart of God which he longed to make known and has done when the fullness of time came. And this is uh, something which is rich with glory and grace 
and prospects beyond dreams. So may the Lord grant that as we go through Colossians, we shall realize something of the wonder of its teaching.